It's my great honor to introduce Dr. Raymond Carr as our next speaker. Dr. Raymond Carr received his PhD from Graduate Theological Union in Systematic and Philosophical Theology. He's Assistant Professor of Theology and Ethics in the Religion and Philosophy Division of Pepperdine University, where he teaches an, a wide array of courses on Martin Luther, on Theology and Struggle, significant for our conference, and the Hebrew Bible in context. Those with even a glancing acquaintance with Dr. Carr will be aware of his theological expertise, his ethical seriousness, and his passionate commitment to our shared endeavors. And I can say that I am eager, deeply eager to read his theological aesthetics, titled Theological Theology in the Mode of Monk, Bart and Cohn on Revelation and Freedom. Today, we'll get what I hope will be a taste of this project with a lecture entitled Theolonius Monk, Icon of the Eschaton, Carbart, James Cohn, and the Impossible Possibility of a Theology of Freedom. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Carr to the podium. I appreciate that. It's I appreciate that introduction. I thought he was talking about someone else for a second. Uh, I want you to hear a song. We'll hear a song and then a clip that will introduce you to Thelonious Monk. The song is going to last about two minutes or so. And then we'll, in the clip, and all together, there'll be about five minutes, all right? His melodies were beautiful. His chords were unusual. His colors, his rhythmic sense, you know, and and the spiritual feeling in the music. You know, when you heard his music, it just carried you away. The most difficult thing about Monk in the studio was his a combination of his perfectionism and his really basic, I think, inability to understand what the hell was supposed to be so difficult about his music. You know, the attitude that he understood it, why couldn't you?
a lot of things that we do in common one to another. And we all do some of the usual things, you know. We use some of the usual phrases. Monk wasn't like that, you know. So Monk was like a, like a real free spirit who said, I'm gonna play this way. This is what I want. And he plays stuff that nobody else ever played. Probably one of the few people who, who really stuck to their gun and got what he wanted out of what he wanted to do. You know, there's very few people who make it, who make it doing what they want to do. Monk went through a period of not making it, but he still was Monk. When he made it, he still was Monk. He epitomizes what a jazz musician is supposed to be. He has a, a style which is instantly identifiable, whether it's in composition, whether it's uh, in his playing, or whether it's someone playing along the lines of Thelonious Monk. Uh, it's a very uh, personal approach to jazz. All right, I'm grateful to be able to give you that introduction uh, to Thelonious Monk. Um, I want to begin by expressing uh, public gratitude to Kate, Bruce, and others who helped me to be a part of this event to talk about Karl Barton, the future of liberation theology. And I would be remiss if I didn't express my public gratitude for the life, friendship, and theological contributions of one James, James Hyle Cone. What he contributed to me cannot be quantified. As I mentioned to a friend recently, I discovered Karl Barth in the stacks at Lubbock Christian University in 1995. And because of my strong biblical foundation, I loved him immediately. I was introduced to Cone's theology after that met the man, and fell in love with him. Dr. Cone's embodiment witnesses an important way to something beyond the somewhat discursive conversations we have in theological talks. James Cone, like my friend James Noel, who died a couple of years ago, encouraged me, not without critique, to go my own way in theology, much the way Monk went his own way in his music. He never criticized the idea that I was interested in the work of Karl Barth. Now I find myself negotiating my way between the scylla of James Noel's articulation of the thought of Charles Long and the cabardice of James Cone's theological brilliance. And although I'm no Odysseus, and this is not the Strait of Messina, I find this location to be edifying. And one of the ways that Karl Barth should be placed in conversation with African traditions is tied to what, is mean, what it means to read in light of the ancestors. Barth believed that writers of the past should be read as living voices. He does not treat those in the past as merely dead and thus as mere texts, but as living voices because he served a living God. He writes, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Luther, Schleiermacher, and all the rest and I would add, Harriet Tubman, David Walker, W.B. Du Bois, Henry Highland Garnett, Sojourner Truth, Ida B. Wells, Thelonious Monk, and James H. Cone, quote, are not dead, but living. They still speak and demand a hearing as living voice, as surely as we know that they and we belong together in the church. We cannot play our part today without allowing them to play theirs. Our responsibility is not only to God, to ourselves, to men and women of today, to other living theologians, but to them. I find great comfort, and I commend this to you. Bart's approach has deepened my own insights into what it means to commune with the ancestors, as I especially have reflected upon the work of Karl Barth and James Cone. So I'll read my abstract, and we'll, you'll hear my paper. Following the theology of Karl Barth and James Cone, this constructive theological proposal explores the possibility of theology beyond its epistemic configuration in a Western epi epistemic, 
or white aesthetic regime, to use my friend Willie Jennings' terms. Such a proposal demands that we not only reorient the theology of Karl Barth, but that we engage, engage James Cone's most prescient critics, which for the sake of time, I will reduce to Charles H. Long and some of his very important interlocutors who prophesy the end of theology and the beginning of theological thinking. To be sure, responding to the so-called impossibility of theology calls for a redemptive turn to new intellectual rhythms, which I argue will make a theology of freedom an impossible possibility. So I'll begin with this song uh, quote from Leonard Cohen that goes like this. Cohen died in 2016 as a Canadian singer. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offerings. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And it is in this light, in the light of brokenness, that I would like to think of the relationship between Karl Barth and the future of liberation theology, our theme for this year's Barth Conference. My title, Thelonious Monk, Icon of the Eschaton, The Impossible Possibility of a Theology of Freedom, leads to some important questions. It obviously needs unpacking. But what I hope you heard in the song lyrics is something of an ode that ultimately speaks to the brokenness of all theological endeavors. Theology is a broken discipline, even as it points away from itself, and perhaps this is the reason why it should point away from itself, because of its brokenness. Jean-Luc Marion ventures to say that it's even hypocritical. Theology, quote, theology renders its author hypocritical, close quote. To put it simply, there's a crack in everything. It is in this sense of a parabolic suggestiveness that monks, Thelonious Monk as an icon can shed profound insight on the task of theology for monks' music witnesses indirectly. So why monk? But that's not, that's not the first question. My titles is typically isn't the first question. I'm often asked in these conventions about Thelonious Sphere Monk, a man described sometimes as the enigmatic high priest of bebop. The first question I'm asked is, why monk? And I always think, he is a high priest. <laughs> what does theology have to do with Thelonious Monk, and what does Thelonious Monk have to do with theology? So for those of you who have not heard me speak on why I chose Monk, let me give you a brief discursive of why Monk, other than what you've seen and heard. In fact, when I'm asked why Monk, especially by jazz people, and even some of those who have a rudimentary knowledge of jazz, I often get, why not Bud Powell? Or John Coltrane, Love Supreme. Or one of the other beboppers, like Charlie Parker or Dizzy Gillespie. Why Monk? Then on the other hand, I hear statements like, you know what, jazz is a little passe. Everybody's talking about improvisation. Is it outmoded? In response, there are several reasons for why I chose Thelonious Sphere Monk, the centenary whose birth we celebrated last year. And I will quickly name a few. First, personally, no one's style, especially in the early bebop tradition, is as distinctive as Thelonious Monk's style. He subjectively appropriates mu the music of the past around the 1930s, including stride piano, including styles as, such as jazz, the jazz of J.P. Johnson, Art Tatum, Fats Waller, Duke, Duke Ellington, Willie the Lion Smith, and Mary Lou Williams, whose house they used to go and try out different things, who became a champion of bebop music. The point I want you to remember is that he always honored his own subjectivity. But this lecture is not a bio on Monk. As we saw in the video, it is the key description yet of a quintessential jazz artist, subjectivity. That is audacious self-expression. I think that may have something to say to theology. Secondly, in relation to Karl Barth, Karl Barth's Mozart, and James Cone's Spirituals and Blues, Monk's music suggests a discursive historical relationship for me. His music provides an iconic prototype of a subjective turn to Barth's so-called objective Mozart. Now, anyone that reads on Barth, read about Barth's view of Mozart knows that Barth has his own Mozart. But nevertheless, parabolically in my mind, Monk's music suggests something of a subjective analogy to Barth's objective Mozart. In fact, for Bart, Mozart witnessed to the quintessential yes to creation in the music of Mozart. For it is here in Mozart in the melody of reconciliation where the ground tones of redemption have their form for Bart, their source for Bart. 
And for Bart, the redemptive order is set in tension with the natural world, and it gives it parabolic form. Thus, the suggestiveness of Mozart's music spoke again and again to Bart. He woke up and shaved to Mozart. On the day of his death, his wife went into his room to turn on Mozart. He writes that without such music, I could not think of that which concerns me personally in both theology and politics, close quote. This tension with the world comes from a spirituality that rises from the mystery of the incarnation. An implication of what Bart is encouraging is a theological dialectics which can give way to an aesthetics of freedom in creation. Moreover, Monk's music, in my view, coincides as a locus in and with James Cone's spirituals and blues. Not the book, but the people of the book. Well, immediately old, the old turn, uh, the turn of century article comes to mind with its title, Blues is Jazz and Jazz is Blues. That comes to mind. But Cone is not concerned. He's concerned with something more than mere identifications categories and techniques used to retrieve these critical memories. He describes the problem in this way, quote, black history then is the stuff out of which the black spirituals were created. But the stuff, with quotes around it, of black history includes more than the bare historical facts of slavery. Black history is an experience, a soulful event. And to understand it is to know the being of a people who had to, quote, feel their own way along the course of American slavery, enduring the stresses and strains of human servitude, but not without a song. Cone goes on, black history is a spiritual. Woo, that'll make some Bardians tense up. Let me continue, let me continue. Maybe not. Of course, these songs include tunes such as the one you just heard, where Monk, through an oral aesthetic, adds his touches to this is my story, this is my song, played with this characteristic dissonance. And then there is Blue Monk, which you heard on the video, played with a modern kind of swag and swing. It's one of the songs that I wake up to in the morning. So thinking from the vantage of Monk, I do not see myself at a distance from what James Cone is doing in black liberation theology. I do not make an apology for studying Cone, and I do not make an apology for studying Bach. I'm doing theology. I'm after something bigger than both. He is articulating, Cone, a, articulating a theology for a people. And in this sense, I see that, that theology in the mode of Monk as somewhat a constructive tone, turn to Cone's own deconstructive and constructive critique of what my friend Willie Jennings calls the white aesthetic regime or of what Gayrod Wilmore calls the culture of white domination. Third, Monk's name is synonymous with a significant signification of a turn, a joyful turn in and beyond even the jazz tradition. Gabriel Solis, a musicologist, states that Monk's name is, is often invoked in relation to countercultural hipness or nonconformism. Recently in Boston, Stanley Talbot and I were sitting over there Stanley and Tabel and I, we went to a restaurant. The restaurant was called Thelonious Monkfish, an Asian fusion restaurant. That's the kind of going beyond. And as I want to point out, even a routine Google search reveals the Thelonious Monk of bass guitar, the Thelonious Monk of actors, the Thelonious Monk of the small screen, the Thelonious Monk of DJs, of streetwear, of poetry, even the Thelonious Monk of therapy. And that's a serious massage right there. <laughs> you might want to get that one. Let me continue. As Cornell West points out, when bebop emerges, it does not merely signify a revolution within jazz. It does that, but more. It is reflective of a mood. And it settles in a revolutionary period where much of jazz thereafter is shaped by its prevailing character. On the one hand, it is not reactive where it needs to put others down. And on the other, it did not seek assimilation, which West sees as, quote, symptomatic of self-doubt, insecurity, and a lack of power. In other words, this style of jazz participates within the cultural matrix in America in a way that reflects a coming of age among black artists and musicians and intellectuals. And West said it this way, 
Charlie Parker didn't give a damn. And Monk didn't either, as you saw in the video. Bebop, therefore, provides an important viewpoint which, with which to discuss this phenomenon of not giving a damn or actualizing agency. And Thelonious Monk puts it this way, quote, I say play your own way. Don't play what the public wants you to play. You play what you, you play what you want and let the public pick up on what you do. Even if it, even it does, if it does take 15 or 20 years, close quote. That could affect tenure right there. <laughs> this emergence of jazz forms a, a background for the black aesthetic as which in a white aesthetic, again, this type of regime we're talking about is deeply indicative of being dirty or soiled or unchaste, or, or maybe it lacks technique. Monk always gets that criticism. It is these such as these types of aesthetic values, according to Dolores Williams, that shapes the pretensions of the ideologies in America." Close quote. But then there is a deeper reason for why I chose Monk that I have not spoken publicly about publicly to this point, but you could have figured it out if you heard me. I chose to think of Thelonious Monk as an icon. Not as an icon in the sense of Aretha Franklin, who won an award, or Jaden Smith, that's Will Smith's son for you old heads. Uh, he has a new album called Icon, you might want to get that. America has plenty of these types of icons, and Monk, of course, is that too for jazz aficionados. But I think of Monk as an icon in the authentic sense of being a way to contemplate the God of redemption. If I can follow Jean-Luc Marion, who in his text, quote, God without being, that's the text title, raises a question of the idol and the icon. Here I would say that an icon along with him, despite its sinister Catholic origins, you gotta always get that in when you're dealing with Bart, you gotta get that in, <laughs> points to the invisible. As Marion argues, the, quote, the icon does not result from a vision, it provokes one. Thus, through the icon, one begins to characterize something of redemption. And to put it simply, it helps us to see something. Allow me to say this in a different way, in Bart's theological language. Respecting the relationship between the analogons and the analogatum. Ah, we got some Bartians in here. You got to stay on your toes. I was thinking about that. The icon, the, sim the symptom, the signifier, and again, I'm not identifying Bart with Marion's idea, but Marion is, is real slippery is something that can make possible knowledge of that which is impossible to know in some other way. It is to use Bart's language, the making known of an impossible possibility. Bart punctuates Romans with the language of impossible possibility, littered throughout the text like the dissonant notes in a Thelonious Monk song. Speaking of the righteous ones who wait on God, and he describes them as a people with these oracles of God, I quote in Romans, compelled to be stilled by their experiences or by the experiences of others, they direct their attention to the possibility that the unknown can as such become an object of knowledge. By their recollection of the impossible, they are themselves the proof that God stands within the realm of, the po of possibility, not as, one not as one among others, but, and this is precisely what is made clear in their case, as the impossible possibility. He goes on talking about these people who are waiting with the oracles of God. He says, it is irrelevant whether they possess and are concerned to guard Moses or John the Baptist, Plato or socialism, or that moral perception which dwells in all of its simplicity in the midst of the rough and tumble of human life. In each case, there's a vocation, promise, a parabolic possibility, something which is offered to women I added that part. And men, as an open road to their deepest perceptions. I'm just trying to help out the translators. It goes on. Moreover, it is this deeper sense of monk as an icon to address the perception that allows me to press toward the possibility of a theology of freedom of the kind that Karl Barth alluded to when visiting America in 1962. He's talking about a freedom for humanity, agency, life. Indeed, a theology of freedom must transcend even a simple phenomenological construction. Now notice, I did not say that it must eschew any 
phenomenological description. What I'm saying is that it must not become enslaved to it. What is also intriguing, intriguing about Bart's discussion of an impossible possibility in Romans is that he uses it to point to what is possible when you possess faith in the righteousness of God. Later in volume four, he uses impossible possibility to describe sin and that which God does not will. As an aside, this is very intriguing to me. Uh, Bart gets blamed for an absence of grace in Romans during the development of his crisis period. And then he gets blamed for a triumph of grace in the dogmatics where he's developing his Christological concentration. That might be a problem with emphasis or approach. Nevertheless, to call it an impossible possibility is to break with the theology of freedom being a principle in any way. That's his, that's his word to Burkhar in that volume four. In any way, or reducing the faith to some type of programs. Oh, we love programs in the church. That's an aside. You know, I, I tend to pepper my talks with stuff like, y'all pray for me. Consider me a weaker brother and pray for me. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get that. It's my style. But, I don't apologize. Let me move on. It presses one back to the subject matter for Bart. Moreover, this would be a different way of being determined by an other, even an abstract one. The, the idea of a phenomenology of power comes to mind. And often that when, when we're caught by power, we don't see how technique is locking us in in a certain way. Programs and other things like that. Let me continue. So the next point is to engage Charles H. Long. So how does one navigate between the relationship of a theology a la Bart, with its potential to open up to a form of parabolic su suggestiveness, and the theology of James Cone with its concrete criticism of racism and theologies that address sexes, classes, heterosexes, anti-immigrationist policies and powers, especially when the most salient criticism emerging from one of Cone's critiques in the Western world is is that not only is the space overdetermined by the Western epistemy, but theology as a discourse participates in this overdetermination. This is Long's critique, which preoccupies James Cone in the spirituals and the blues. That was Long's critique that led Cone to write the spirituals and the blues. But a lot of people don't know who Long is. And it's also what motivates Cone to write chapter four and the cross, and the lynching tree. That's in response to Long. You won't find his name there, but that's who Cone is responding to. One of those illusion-type things that you get in that Karl Barth, right? Let me continue on. Long argues that the theology of freedom, if it is to arise, it must be a, a destruction of theology as a, quote, powerful mode of discourse. He sees the power in theology, that opaque power within theology that we sometimes overlook. Charles H. Long, a history of religion scholar, along with Mercy Eliade, Joseph Kitogawa, and Jonathan Smith resided in Chicago in the 1960s, a time called the golden age of the Chicago School of History of Religions, even though it was not really a school. He is described as a dean of black religious studies in America. And what Long suggests is that black bodies were the site of the locus of ideologies that justified their enslavement. Their opaque bodies were the loci of a surplus of meaning. In other words, a theology emerges, out of, emerges in the Western world that does not take into account such embodiment, but rather renders them unseen, overdetermined, opaque. It led Charles Long to call black theologies and Native American theologies and others theologies opaque. And so James Noel is responding to that. Charles Long is trying to offer African-American scholars a way to try to wrestle with the darkness. And the term opaque is a term they use. I use the term around midnight. It led Charles Long to call, uh, read that. Another way to say this following James Noel is to say, and I quote Noel, that this idea fails to do justice, this type of theology fails to do justice to the depth, diversity, complexity and richness of the actuality of black religion. If this occurs, it will render them as what long determined, quote, empirical others, close quote. Their subjectivity and self-understanding is lost. This is what happened when black and other enslaved and colonized peoples were configured in the Western epistemic. 
through missionary discourse and the new human sciences which were promoted by the Enlightenment and Romantic movements. This generated the trope of civilized that distinguished the West from its colonized and racialized others. But close quote. But what Charles Long and James Cone, but what does Charles Long and James Cone have to do with Bart and liberation theology? Well, allow me to explain. In 1962, the grand Protestant theologian Karl Barth came to America. He walked these hollowed halls and he visit, visited Chicago. One of the people he ran into during his visit was the brilliant, young, and beautifully black juggernaut history of religion scholars named Charles H. Long. And Barth describes the initial encounter in his text called Evangelical Theology, which, which represents some of his last lectures. Bart is confronted with a question, quote, how do you like this strange place called America? It reads, Bart writes, this was asked by a dusky theological colleague, not a Roman Catholic this time, but a literally black, but a literally black colleague with a subtle smile soon after my arrival in Chicago, close quote. One can only imagine that for Long, he was already making his appeal to Bart to understand America as being what Long calls a, quote, hermeneutical situation. Bart had walked into a hermeneutical situation. And in discussions with Chuck DeLong, I discovered that the part of what their two-hour conversation was about, what he engaged Bart on, was Bart's fascination with Stonewall Jackson. Have you ever been to Bart's house? You know Bart got three shelves of Civil War books. He knows the Civil War. He came to America. In fact, the guide would leave one way. Bart says, no, it's over here. He says, oh, yeah, you're right. It's sort of like setting your watch to Kant. Right? By the way, reconsidering the earlier quote in Romans, when Bart says, it is irrelevant whether they possess and are concerned to guard Moses or John the Baptist, Plato or socialism, or that moral perception which dwells in its simplicity in the midst of the rough and tumble of human life. Well, Long argues that Bart tended to have a high appreciation for pietistic traditions. Thus, according to Long, he had to do some demythologizing of Bart's understanding of Stonewall Jackson. Anybody know anything about Stonewall Jackson? He's often described as a man of arms surrounded by tenets of faith. Some piety right there. Sound like American. Yeah, he is. And in fact, Bart closed his speech on the Holy Spirit in Chicago with an appeal to Stonewall Jackson. Quoting his last words spoken in the hour of his death, he was quoting Stonewall Jackson, and the quote is, quote, let us cross the river and rest in the shade of the trees, close quote. But wondered imaginatively whether Jackson was referring to the Potomac or to the Jordan. I heard him on tape say that. He says it, though. To the Jordan. To the Jordan. And it is here in this discussion of crossing rivers that I'm tempted to offer some brief reflections on the relationship between Charles Long and rivers. But let me just say, uh, that Long, because of his work as a historian of religion, he knows rivers, like Langston Hughes knows rivers. And he is deeply conversant on the way that, that water and bodies of water can form an orientation, a mnemonic structure, evoking modes of life. But I won't go there. We can maybe talk about that during the back talk there. Next section, playing between the theological cracks. Here in these critical conversations between Karl Barth, Charles Long, Karl Barth and Charles Long, and Charles Long and James Cone, I think we arrive at a threshold of a new opportunity in this juxtaposition between, these, between the so-called impo impossibility of theology, of freedom, and the materiality of black experience in America. Here with Barth's Christological concentration, Long's focus on a hermeneutical situation, and Cone's emphasis on radical concretization, it is here where we arrive at the threshold that makes me feel like Randy Weston, a brilliant monk interpreter and pianist who along with his friend Ahmed Abdul Malik, a bassist, they describe their experience of searching for something new, something different. This reminds me of the BART conference, looking for a way forward, but, but these two were looking for a new way to play music or maybe just a way to play. Nevertheless, they had arrived at the idea that perhaps they could try to play the notes between the cracks. And they discovered that Thelonious Monk, Thelonious Monk, and realized that he was already doing it. 
Now, I didn't put this in my paper, but if I wonder if I might share something that would include some language that we typically won't use in church. All right, I'll just let you know, if you ever invite me to preach, I will not say this at your church, okay? Anyway, Thelonious Monk, was a, 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 one of his accompanists, he said, you know, and I, I'm going to use the language that jazz artists use. He says, I've traveled with people who can play all the white keys. And I've traveled with people who can play all the black keys. But I've never traveled with a motherfucker that can play between the cracks. Now, I say that. Don't, don't let your sacramental nature get too upset about that, all right? I'm not want to embarrass my audience here. But I just, I just want you to hear that the idea of playing between the cracks, it is the playing between the cracks that allow, theological cracks, that allows monk's music to function as a hermeneutical criterion between the thought of Karl Barth and James Cone and perhaps to speak even more deeply to the concern of Charles Long. Perhaps one way to do this is to hear Bart's description of his beloved Mozart contrasted with Cone's description of the spirituals and the blues. I want you to hear this. Bart writes, with God, the world himself, heaven and life, earth, heaven, earth and life, and above all death, ever present before his eyes, in his hearing and in his heart, he was a profound, unproblematical, and thus a free man, a freedom, so it seems, given to him, indeed commanded and therefore exemplary for him. This implies, right, Bart, writes Bart, that, quote, that an extraordinary degree of his music is free of all exaggeration, of all sharp breaks and contradictions. The sun shines but does not blind, does not blind, does not burn or consume. Heaven arches over the earth, but it does not wear it down, it does not crush or devour it. Did you hear that objective read that Bart is sharing there? Of course, for Bart, Mozart is not like Bach. And he's certainly not like Thelonious Monk. According to Bart, Mozart is not trying to say anything. And what Bart hears in Mozart is a theological vision of the objectivity of God. Gegenstand. Cone, nevertheless, in a text born out of the counter-melody understood as a critique of Charles Long, turns in the other direction, driving down on the experience of blacks in America writing, Quote, the blues are made by working people. When they have a lot of problems to solve about their work, when their wages are low and they don't have no way to exist hardly and they don't know which way to turn and what, what to do, Blind Lemon Jefferson expressed a similar feeling in a song. I stood on the corner, I almost bust my head. I stood on the corner, I almost bust my head. I couldn't earn enough money to buy me a loaf of bread. Cone says, the blues experience always is an encounter with life. It's, it's trials and tribulations, it's bruises and abuses, but not, without the, but not without the melody and rhythm of a song. It is here, in Cone's turn of Bart, where there emerges a type of reciprocity or a conceptual kinship. If you would permit me to use the language of some rabbinic theologians, thinking of Caducian, I would argue that Cone and Bart should be understood organismically, the term is organismically. So organism, but organismically. They both are witnesses to the words of the living God. Indeed, I would argue, if you would permit me to corner term, that what we should have here is a melody lira, a teaching of melodies. Considering Bart's doctrine of lights in paragraph 69, he regularly uses the language of parables and true words. And here is a term. He uses this term, extraordinary witnesses. Bart, in fact, writes, and let me just say this, that James Cone makes ordinary what Bart sees as extraordinary. Black experience becomes an ordinary part of the life of God. But Bart would say, that's extraordinary. And that's part of their difference. So Bart says this in volume, in, in paragraph 69. No Prometheism can be effectively maintained against Jesus Christ as the one who suffered and conquered on the cross. He has destroyed it once and for all and in all of its forms. But this means that in the world reconciled by God and Jesus Christ, there is no secular sphere abandoned by him or withdrawn from his control. Even where from the human standpoint, it seems to approximate most dangerous, dangerously to pure and absolute form of utter godlessness. If we say that there is, we're not thinking and speaking in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
But if we refrain from this inflexible attitude, we will certainly be prepared at any time for true words, even from what seem to be the darkest places. And when I read that darkest places, I thought of the opaque, where there are true words that come, the kind of words that James Cone is talking about. Let me continue. Unfortunately, rather than a site of affirmation for some, for some theologians, Cone's theologies at that very point, at theology at that very point, is a site of contestation. For some reason, a number of theologians fail to hear the conceptual relationship to Bart also. Thus, the melody lyra heard in the harmonies of liberty are occluded in the halls of some seminaries. Using Monk as a hermeneutical criterion, however, and with a little help for us to maybe bend our ears, perhaps cone can mean more than sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. Perhaps the problem is something deeper and the specter of Charles Long remains. That is, theology and its relationship to technique may be functioning powerfully. More powerfully than we are willing to acknowledge. Indeed, those who will hear Cone at this point will have to have ears that are tuned to the acoustics of the darkness. The short answer is that Cone approaches theology like an artist, thus like a jazz artist. He stretches the form. Talking to Cone last summer. It's a great honor to be a part of a panel with him. We went back and forth because he resisted this relationship with Barton, and that's fine. Um, but he said to me, I played B.B. King like he played his guitar. I said, But B.B. King loved his guitar. Jazz artists played on European instruments, they were not overdetermined by their instruments, they determined their instruments. Let me continue. Monk, unlike Mozart in the blues, doesn't even fit the mold of a bop idiom. Technique for him can always be polished and refined, but Monk cultivated instead a style that seemed awkward, even sloppy. When compared to his predecessors, Monk's runs and trills seemed pointedly clumsy, giving his music a rough-hewn, gutsy quality, not unlike folk art or the tendency in the 70s and the 80s in the visual arts to make objects that are intentionally dumb rather than beautiful. There's a song, by the way, called Ugly Beauty. It's a beautiful song. Perhaps Andre Koenig, the systematic theologian and Bushville farmer, said it best when he described theological thinking as essentially a follower and not a leader. It is a follower of God in terms of nachdenken, that's Bart but is also a follower of the human experience in terms of its transactions and ambiguities. He wrote, quote, it is a mistake to lay down as a condition, as is sometimes done, that the church must first attain theoretical clarity about many problems, about the many problems. And then he goes on, he's, and he's mentioning the spiritual gifts and then also the proclamation of the gospel. And he says, and also about many of the problems formulated in the creeds or formulated in creeds with an exclamation point. The Lord lives and works in and through the church that received the gospel from the apostles. And in pursuing this task, problems do arise which must be theoretically resolved. But theological reflection is essentially a follower, not a leader. You don't want to be overdetermined by theological reflection. That's, that was one of Cone's big critiques. I didn't put this in my paper, but he was always critiquing the idea of how method, the idea of being captured, those who were captured by a Bardian methodology, couldn't really understand him. I understand that because I was captured by that methodology too. It wasn't Bart that I had to discover something about. I had to learn what Cone was doing. And I'm a black man. So I know you all are struggling too. So it's, it's, it's nice to know that. Let me continue. Thus, it is this juxtaposition between the impossibility of faith and the materiality of the black experience in America where I ponder the surplus available to the theologian and the type of freedom that emerges in this ambiguity. How do we move forward with new intellectual rhythms? How do we get to a new depth or what Charles Long may call a new arche? Can theology in what I call monk mode itself, along with the spirituals and blues, open up in new ways? And what if, what if as a black person in America, I include not just the work songs, spirituals and blues, jazz, dance genres and other folk practices too numerable to catalog. What if I included, yes, even Karl Bart Mozart, 
discipline in relation to the free play and surplus of black life? Could we find something new, new light, new sounds emerging from between these theological cracks and rifts that give way to ways to move forward, give us ways to move forward in the future? In other words, can we move beyond, like Monk's name signifies? On one hand, move beyond the, the white aesthetic regime, but also on the other, what Gerard Wilmore calls in cautionary terms, in cautionary tones, the limitations of, quote, folk religious-based ethnic theologies. Such limitations would include the way that some folk religious modes of discussion trivialize the experience of blacks and others. In response to James Noel, James Cohn, in a recent discussion on the cross and the lynching tree, he considered whether we have made access to the sufferings of others too handy, too useful, and echoing Baldwin, he asked, have we really paid our dues? Theology is real easy to do when someone else is suffering. If Long is correct, there's something about the American cultural language that is not easy to escape. So we have to carve out a new space over against this form of determinism. In relation to Bart Long's discussion of knowledge and experience of a, what he calls another reality, another space, is best appraised using Frederick Wilhelm Mark Bart's left-wing interpretation of Bart's theology. I like a little Mark Bart in there, all right? I'm not wedded to Mark Bart. He's not a principal for me, but he has some useful things to say. Mark Bart, as some of you know, championed Bart's conception of, quote, God as the one who loves in freedom. God as the holy other, dear Gonzadira, who simultaneously, and Lachman always points out how, how Mark Vart plays on his word, who simultaneously is the God who changes everything. Their guns, a dare devil. My German's not that good, I'm working on it. God understood this way, he gives the world parabolic form. It fires the imagination and allows us to reimagine matter. In other words, Bart echoes an important biblical theme and extols the alteration of the human situation. You see this a lot in volume fours. It's not just in Mark Vart's talk of Bart. You see this quite a bit. And he's quoting texts like Psalm 19 and other texts where you see this emerge in Karl Bart's work. Following Bart's revolutionary Christological concentration, then history is radically understood from the vantage of revelation. Christ, of course, for Bart, is the definitive reality, but not in the sense of an exclusivity that rules out the reality of others. This orientation allows Bart to reverse the relationship between the gospel and the law, the justification and justice, and redemption and creation. He does it in order to prioritize theological understanding over against so-called negative realities. Das Niktika. But it can also maybe used, following Long, as a critique of what I call, and Long, negative revelations, epitomized by slave ships of commerce with names like Brotherhood and Jesus, and John the Baptist, justice and liberty, slave ships that, you could, that the natives could smell before they could see them. From this modality, one can reinterpret and recapture and reenchant creation or maybe reimagine matter in light of the decisive history of God. But using that language, that Geschichtelikas language. In this line and direction, creation is illuminated from the vantage point of redemption. God's redemption and creation is a gift of God's freedom. And as Bart points out, God did not need to redeem. But because God did redeem, however, the biblical view of space is understood in light of that redemption. And God's spiritual freedom reinvests the concept of land with new meaning. Naturally, then, this reinvestment is important to American blacks or to the little ones because their experience of the absence of land epitomized by the image of Africa is fraught with historical and religious possibilities. Consequently, the black experience is not merely a site of contestation. It is a site of fecundity. And that's true also of the experience of these immigrants and others who are trying to find love and space and health and wholeness and life and humanity. Now, that wasn't in my paper. The preacher comes out of me sometimes. It's a site with generative fruitfulness. In my own work, I try to actualize this reimagination of matter using Long, Cone, Bart, and others to elaborate what I call a pneumatological Christology, which is aimed at or turned toward creation and humanity. 
being a response to Long's critique of Protestantism's preoccupation with Christology. This theology, which I term as being in the mode of monk, is born out of the music and style of life tied to the black community. It is its blue note, its dissonance, its rhythmic displacement, its rhythmic momentum, which witness to what Long calls a deeper and more resourceful freedom, a freedom that the man can't give and a freedom that the man can't take away. But freedom is not grounded in whether you've given it to me or not, or whether I've earned it. Indeed, in its own distorted and ambiguous way, black experience has the potential for pro prophetic critique, which opens the way to re-envision creation or land as the natural ground for spiritual freedom. In this taxonomy, creation as a modality for orienting black reality catalyzes blacks and others to forge identities in America by deepening and actualizing cultural forms which transcend American provincialism and American exceptionalism. And that needs a real critique today. Romans 13. A, dis a distinctive theology of spiritual freedom would be a welcome corrective to the current political notions of freedom born out of the Atlantic world. Returning to Mark Bart's interpretation of Bart. Our view of freedom could be co corrected from the standpoint of redemption, beginning by recognizing how the logos of the Zaka reinterprets the logos of society. God stands in judgment on any society ruled by its own logos, its own reality, its own space, its own freedom. Indeed, a numerological turn in theology provides a method which is chastened in light of God's mysterious freedom. It provides an affirmation of God's radical transformation and it provides a deeper ground for freedom. It will be a theology sounding and ascending from this deeper ground and pressing the children of God, daughters and sons, I put daughters first on purpose, hopefully toward a redemptive solidarity with others, celebrating creation as its natural ground. Improvised communities, human wars, conquests, ethnocentricities, conformities which are reflective of a godless existence can then be confronted by the prophetic voice of the church calling for human acts appropriate to the eloquent action of God. This theological taxonomy, while it privileges Bart's accent on the freedom of God, it also accents Long's emphasis on the surplus meaning emerging from the beauty of those fired in the crucible of oppression. Let us cross the river. And in crossing the river, perhaps we not only will overcome the darkness in our world, but perhaps through the spirit of the crucified Christ, we will witness to recreation. Status mundi, riven about to your tour. Thank you. <laughs>